Introducing the Two-Way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the Two-Way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the Two-Way for yourself at newbalance.com. Hey, it's Fitz, and if you don't know who I am, here's a quick bio. Veteran sports journalist who writes, does TV, radio, and is a longtime podcaster. Also, I have stage 4 prostate cancer, so my doctors advise me to stay home during these COVID-19 concerns. So what am I doing with my time? I'm calling some of the many friends, athletes, coaches, and colleagues who have been part of my life during more than 30 years in journalism. Oh, and I'm hitting the record button. Welcome to my life and the Life of Fitz podcast. A few years ago, a new Kansas State journalism professor was hired, one with extensive professional experience, to join the university's struggling journalism and mass communication school. We, as in the K-State graduates who now work in the area media, eyed him with caution because we knew exactly what the department needed, and it sure seemed a lot to ask for this Andrew Smith fella to fit the bill. Well, he did, and now as Kansas State's professor of practice, Smith teaches television journalism rooted in that real-world experience because after more than 25 years working in TV sports departments, including the prior 18 in Green Bay, Wisconsin, covering the Packers, Smith knows how to mix journalism, creativity, technical skills, and performance into that stew that makes quality television news. And with all that said, that's not why I'm reaching out to Drew to be on my podcast. One of his other duties with Kansas State School of Journalism and Mass Communications is to direct the study abroad program. And as the coronavirus swept the globe, Smith found himself with his wife, two daughters, and seven students in London. As he prepared to return, he wasn't feeling well, but the telltale symptoms of COVID-19 didn't settle in until he had arrived home in Manhattan. Yes, 51-year-old Andrew Smith was Riley County, Kansas's first case of COVID-19, and it hit him hard. He's out of the hospital, nearly back to his pre-Rona self, and ready to tell his tales about his career in sports, his recreation as a teacher, and his journey to the brink with COVID-19. Now let's call Andrew Smith on the other side of my town, Manhattan, Kansas. Drew Smith, back from the break. Hey, hey, hey. How, are you, how are you doing there, Tim? I'm good. I'm good, buddy. How are you doing? Good, man. You know, good, good, much better. You know, this has been a, boy, it's been a crazy month. I'll tell you, <laughs> six weeks really. Uh, it's been, it's been nuts. Like you say, back from the break. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, much better now, though. Uh, you know, feel almost back to. To uh, I was gonna say fighting weight, but uh, you know I, I lost a bunch of weight when I was ill, but now gained it all back. So you know that was 
I was at least trying to hold on to the one, you know, bonus of the COVID, but it didn't work out so good. <laughs> if, you, uh, if you need any advice on putting on weight, I'm probably your guy. I can help you out. <laughs> You're a pro. A pro's pro. <laughs> I've, I've recently discovered the perfectly named Fat Shack Burger, and that will get your weight back uh, up. Yes. Oh, that's good news. So that's good news. <laughs> you, you go to London with seven students, I believe, and you make it all the yeah, way back, and you're unloading your bags, and then it hits you that, oh, something's not quite right here. Yeah. You know, I had been feeling kind of yucky in London. You know, under the weather, it was just kind of, you know, you're, it's jet lag. I'm chasing seven students around. We're going all over the city. We're you know doing video projects. and and I was like, ah, boy, I still don't feel right. But I was like, you know, whatever. I'll, I'll we'll get home, sleep it off, we'll be fine. And yeah, I got got home, and uh, and you know, literally, we we knew we were going to go straight into a quarantine. And we were like, well, we had a, a friend drop like curbside drop a car for us so that we wouldn't have to see anybody. And went directly into our into our garage, and I was pulling the bags out of the back. I was like, oh, so I'll start coughing, and now I can't breathe, and I got to take a knee. I'm like, oh, that's not good. I said, that's, that's, boy, that, that does not feel good at all. I hadn't been really been paying as much attention. I mean, we knew going over there that there was coronavirus stuff going on there, but, uh, you know, we, we had been very careful. So we had done, you're, you're all jammed together in the tube and everything like that. And so, but we had worn gloves and washed hands and, and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, that, 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 that next morning woke up after I got back and the fever of 102. And we said, yeah, you know what? We better go in. My, my family had had other kind of symptoms, a lot of the lesser symptoms that you read about. And uh, so we all went into the emergency room. They tested us all and only processed mine uh, because I was the one that had the worst symptoms. And they're like, well, we got a backlog already. And uh, they said, we're going to presume that if dad has it, mom, two girls have it. And uh, we're just not going to bother the processing time. But I had it. And uh, and it was, uh, you know, it was, and, and they also confirmed that I had double pneumonia. So that just kind of snuck up on me. I mean, it went fast. It was just fast. And uh, within three days, I was in the hospital. And luckily, didn't stay there. <laughs> you know, luckily, made it back out. <laughs> well, I go to WebMD on occasion and can convince myself I've had everything possible. <laughs> Because right. I had one symptom, <laughs> but brother, you had the textbook symptoms of COVID nineteen. Right? How bad did it get? I mean, were you ever on a ventilator or anything? No, they I, they never had to intubate me, which was good. I was on oxygen, so I was on the I, they, you know just the one you see in the movies, you know, with the thing around the nose, right. you know, the little two prongs that go up in the nose, and, um, to to help my the the one thing they really pay attention to in that regard is the pulse oxygen levels right. and. They don't want you to dip below 90. If you've ever gone to the doctor, and they, they do your blood pressure, they do the pulse ox, they put it on your, put the thing on your finger, and they're like, oh, 99, you're good. Um, so I was dipping into the 80s a little bit, and so they gave me a little supplemental oxygen. So three days after I got back and was diagnosed with the double pneumonia and the COVID-like symptoms, which is that super high fever, the dry, bad cough, the uh, the kind of instability, the night sweats, the uh, I mean, I started get, I was getting hallucinations because of the fever. I mean, it was that was it was crazy. So I was at home for three days until finally uh, we got the call, found out that yes, indeed, um, it was positive for me. We so we assumed positive for everybody. And the night before going into the hospital was probably the toughest night 
I was lying there in my bed and you know, normally we breathe, just breathe. And I was concentrating on focusing on breathe one in, breathe one out, breathe in, breathe out and waiting for my body to take over the autopilot. And it, it wouldn't, I would start to fall asleep and then 30 seconds later, wake up realizing I hadn't breathed. Wow. And so that was tough. That was, I was like, Oh my gosh, this is not getting better. And so the next day, my, I've been in contact with my doctor, and he's like, look, I, the last thing I want is to make a mistake and go to me. So if you got to go, let's go. I said, all right, let's go. And so you know, in we went. I was there for five days. First three days, it got worse until finally it started to turn around. And, uh, and you know, I'm a strong, healthy 50-year-old, you know, with you know, minor, minor problems, seasonal allergies, uh, a couple of other things, but nothing major in my background. And it just punched me in the mouth and then in the liver and then, and then in, the, in the, in the blood clots and then in the lung. And then, in the, and it did, it hit me with just about everything it had, That's crazy. But, I, but it beat it, but we beat it. So, and so, you know, good story at the end of it, but uh, yeah, I never had to go on a ventilator, which was, uh, which was good news. The COVID wants you to do nothing. It wants you to sit there and let, even let a machine breathe for you. And I had to get up and get, walk around. And uh, I mean, I'm just trying to get myself, to where my body was was the one who was dictating, not the virus, and that was that was important for me was to to make sure that that was happening. Scary stuff. Did your wife yeah. and kids stay asymptomatic? Uh, no, they did not. Oh. Uh, my my, I had two daughters, uh, fifteen and thirteen. The fifteen year old ended up with a, with a high fever, but only for a couple of days, and uh, and she recovered fairly quickly. My thirteen year old lost taste and smell. Uh, which is one of the one of the signs, um, and, and and may have had a low grade fever, but wasn't too bad. Uh, my wife, she was not as bad as I was. She never had the lungs problem, but a lot of the other stuff she had. She had some of the fever. She's just barely. We're now six weeks later, getting back to taste and smell, which was because it goes up into into that nasal. You know how they. I don't know if you've ever seen how they they do the test. They take a swab and they stick it and they scratch your eyeball through your nose, basically. And uh, that's where it lives, is up in there in the infection. And so that, that hurts the nasal and the taste buds. And so she, she had that for a long time. And the fatigue, the fatigue is the one thing that nobody really talks about. And this is the fatigue because your body's fighting so hard. And so some days it would be you're – you're going along, and one day you're like, I feel great, and we go for a nice long walk, or you do a little, you know, little weight workout, or you do something like, I think I'm good. And the next day you're like wiped out. Your body's like, not, not, not today. And still, we're a little up and down after six weeks, but, but almost back to normal. Wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm I'm glad I wasn't there at the airport to hug you. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I look back, and I think, gosh, I was feeling kind of yucky. I wonder if I was out of fever or something. And uh, at the border, they. When we were on the plane coming back from London, we went uh, from Minneapolis, and they gave us a sheet to fill out for customs. Do you have a fever? Do you have you been in contact with anybody who had COVID? Blah blah blah. And you had to answer all these questions. And they were going to have somebody to meet us there, meet everybody there on the plane. And we got to customs, and it was empty. So we're like, okay. I was, you know, That's weird. thinking that if there was anything wrong, they'd catch it right there or whatever. Um, but no, there wasn't anybody there at the time, and so we just went through customs and and continued on to our to our plane. Um, and you know, luckily, I didn't have anybody in the seats around me, which was probably a blessing for everybody. If I had been, because at that time, when you're just on the front end of it, is kind of when you're. I think you're contagious, and so. Um, but we were, coming back in the states, we were just super, super careful. And you know, when 
they found out that it uh, that mine was positive. I was the first one in the area to be positive, which was uh, which was kind of crazy. And I listened to the Riley County press conference. And he said, yeah, 51-year-old male who just got back from a study abroad in London. I'm like, it's Manhattan. How many 51-year-old males going to study abroad in London are there? Not one. Yeah. <laughs> I said, well, th- thanks for the privacy. Uh, <laughs> and then some of them like uh, – and so, so we're like, well, everyone's going to guess it. In fact, then my phone blew up. It's like, are you a 51-year-old male just getting back from London who's tested positive? Question mark. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So I'd like friends, news directors, people all over the place were starting to um, – and then I had a friend on Facebook who said – there's a positive test in Riley County. Oh, no, it's here. And then I had somebody else underneath. Another one of my friends said, I am so terrified. And I thought, you know, if nothing else, I said, I, my responsibility is to the, to the public and the communities to make sure that people aren't so paralyzed by fear in number one. And I don't want people to be afraid. And so we said, well, you know, we're going to go public and let people know, hey, listen, we talked to nobody. We transferred to nobody. We, we came home and we've been isolated and quarantined in our house. Totally, totally haven't gone to the store, nothing. And we, there, there was no community spread from our, from our case whatsoever. But I wanted to make sure everybody knew that so that they weren't afraid. And um, so we, we decided to go public with it. And it kind of blew up. I did a video in the, in the ICU. Uh, the day after I got there and like 53,000 views or something crazy on Facebook, you know, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know more than like, you know, 50 people and it's getting 50,000 views. I'm like, I, <laughs> suddenly I'm viral. I'm like really viral, you know, <laughs> my viral, viral video. Uh, and so, and, it, and all of a sudden I was getting stuff from all across the entire country. Uh, you know, I worked in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I covered the Packers there. And I worked in Vegas and I worked in Salt Lake City and went to school in Utah. And I've got friends in California and the East Coast. And suddenly it was just an outpouring of support, which was, which was great. And, you know, the, the, the well wishes, everyone's like, oh, yeah, thoughts and prayers, well wishes. What's that going to, what does that help? What you need is the hydrochloroquine and the, and the zithromycin. Um, the one, the one major benefit is what I kind of realized was with all that well wish and support kept my mood really high. I, it made it so I didn't get depressed. It made it so I didn't feel the same stressors. And so my body didn't have to fight stress, depression, uh, fear, anxiety, because I had all this support that it was distracting me, booing me up. And so I could concentrate on just fighting the illness, which and so that to me, and, you know, depending on your faith, you believe in the power of prayer. And I, I, there were a lot of people praying. And I, that to, to me, that is something that's important. But I think even, uh, even as important was it, it gave me the, it gave me the chance to say, all right, we're good. I'm just going to fight the thing and we're going to go, go and get it. Prayer, good vibes, whatever works for you. Whatever works way. for you, man. Yeah. You know, yeah it, exactly. it is amazing what that just positive energy around you can do. At one point when you were hallucinating, did you wake up and say, honey, I just had a dream that I'm teaching journalism in the middle of Kansas? <laughs> like the Bob Newhart moment? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Bob Newhart. It was the craziest thing. I was running it in. And... <laughs> Actually, I, 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 it was funny. I, I was trying to distract myself. And at the time, with a fatigue, I couldn't really watch television. I was in the hospital for five days and didn't turn the TV on once. I mean, this is the United States of America, for crying out loud. And I didn't turn the TV on. I couldn't concentrate. The, the last thing I watched before going to the hospital was like two days before because I just couldn't concentrate enough. And I, I was scrolling through HBO, and I'm like, hey, I've never seen Gangs in New York. You know, that's a great movie, and I've been re- I was reading a book on – 
uh, on the uh, on the, kind of the underbelly of the New York area of that almost that same time. And I said, oh, okay, let's. And so I got about halfway through, and there was it was so violent and moving around, and I started having these hallucinations and nightmares that Daniel Day Lewis in the form of Bill the Butcher was coming at me with a knife and a <laughs> meat cleaver. And I, I'm like running through the streets of New York and I, and I'm trying to wake myself up. And I mean, that was a recurring nightmare then for the next like four days. <laughs> so the fever was, uh, was helping with those yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I take uh, certain painkillers, I got to be real careful they will give me night terrors, and I just have these vivid, yeah. horrible dreams where my wife has to wake me up because I'm screaming to wake up. And it's just, I hate that. Oh, it's just yeah. awful. Yeah. It's awful. I've yeah, never we, dreamed about just... Daniel Day-Lewis, so that's kind of weird. <laughs> you know, Cameron Diaz is in that movie, too. You think I you know, dream about Cameron Diaz instead. No, no, Daniel Day-Lewis, right? <laughs> yeah, well... <laughs> Well, uh, let's back up. Let's talk about that journey. Sure. I didn't know you worked in Vegas. Maybe you've told me that. Yeah, man. Know. That's that's sexier than Green Bay. I'm sorry, Green Bay. Yeah, right. Yeah. I I worked in Vegas for about three years. I met my wife in Vegas, as a matter of fact. And, Ooh, la, la. Uh, I know, right? No, at church though. She <laughs> she hates when I tell. <laughs> See, that's when I tell the story that well, it was church to me, you know. Uh, no, yeah. we actually did meet at church. Um, but I, yeah, I worked in Vegas for about three and a half years. It was great. It was right during uh, the kind of that golden crazy age of, of, of prize fighting. Um, Tyson Holyfield, wow, cool. Oscar De La Hoya, Julio Cesar Chavez, Pernell Whitaker, kind of that, that same. I was at the bite fight when, uh, when wow. Mike Tyson bit the ear off of Evander Holyfield. I mean, I was in row, I think it was L. So what is, how many, I, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, like 11, 12 rows back watching the fight. And, if you've never been to a prize fight, it's a uh, it is a crackling testosterone fest. Yes, and so much so that uh, I mean, there's just the pomp and the circumstance and the music and the God, people come the people come walking in and that one night of that Tyson Holyfield fight was um, was just so electric and there are people that are. Uh, their fights breaking out in the crowd and I mean you know, everybody thinks that they're a fighter now and that they're dragging people out and. There was an old boxing uh, writer named Bert Sugar. I don't know if you've ever heard yeah, of Bert sure. Sugar. He was he was a very eccentric character. And he was sitting coffee cup for me and Bert and I were friendly at the time. And uh, we're watching the fight. Mills Lane is the is the referee. And, um, as they're they're clinching, clinching, and all of a sudden Holyfield starts jumping up and down, batting at his own head. And uh, and Bert Sugar stands up with a stogie in one hand and starts pointing at the ring, saying, "He bit him! He bit him! He bit him! He bit him!" And that crap and that place goes bananas. And uh, people forget that they, that they fight continued, and Tyson went after the other ear and bit the other ear too. So he bit both sides of the head, and took chunks out of each ear. And that night was nuts. So yeah, Vegas was a fun town to work, fun town to work in. I've, I've um, had people tell me that Vegas is many things, but it's much different on prize fight nights. The big fights, the whole uh, town is different. Yeah, it, 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 it's just electric. You know, the, they know that the the world is watching, particularly in those eras when uh, when you had those really really huge names and they they uh, had. Um, uh, Oscar De La Hoya fought in Vegas all the time. And he, you know, the golden boy, gold medalist, and a good-looking kid, and uh, and it was such a uh, at the time it was such a cultural phenomenon to have these fights. He he fought uh, who there's a shot special outdoor arena 
at Caesar's Palace while I was there. It was about 110 degrees that day. It had only gone down to about about maybe 95 by the time that fight started. And, um, and again, just this electric through the whole city because people come in for the fights, man. People would, would stream into the city uh, to go to the fight, not just to go to the fight, but to bet on the fight, to watch it on closed circuit and some of the some, – so it was going on everywhere. And it just dominated those big prize fights. It was like a Super Bowl every few months where the entire town was involved in it. And uh, everybody knew that, you know, that De La Hoya Chavez was coming up and – um, you know, and, as, and covering it as a journalist, you're always kind of looking at different things. And uh, that that was a uh, the uh, Julio Cesar Chavez was one of the one of those great middleweights and uh, and was getting older when he fought to La Jolla and to La Jolla ended up cutting him. And the, you know, Chavez was uh, they, they called the fight. It was just totally bloody and this and that. Uh, and I found a, I was watching, you know, as a journalist, you look at a lot of different sources. Right. So I was watching Telemundo one day because I saw that they had a Chavez interview on and saw like two weeks before the fight the he was he was in a talk show and his son was in his lap. And, you know, two and three year olds, they buck back and forth and buck back backwards and whacked him in the side of the head and, and cut him. So I've been a reporter that two weeks before the fight, he had been cut. And that's why he was cut during the show and during the fight. And uh, you know, like a week later, I had an interview with Don King. Great you know, the old boxing promoter. Yeah. And uh and and he looked at me and he kinda wagged his finger and said, Yeah, I saw your report. Nobody was ever supposed to find out about that. <laughs> and I said, Yeah, hey, you know, we got eyes everywhere. That's the fight game. It was just a it was collector time. The moral of that story is your children will turn on you at any moment. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Which is why Always. Becky and I didn't have any. I'll See, just, there you go. I'll just turn uh, just, on you. you know, yours are just large and fuzzy. <laughs> yes, it's very, very fuzzy right now. Can't get, <laughs> can't, uh, get human cuts or dog cuts right now. Uh, you, know, you can order some sheep shears from uh, ready from, to. Uh, from eBay. No, okay, all right. Uh, I, I'm almost sad that mixed martial arts is stealing the thunder from boxing, but mm. I feel like boxing is a sport that that needs to pass by. You know, it needs time needs to move it into the background because now we understand that old fighters aren't punch drunk. Uh, they've got concussion. They've they've right. got CTE and their brains have just been scrambled. And it's just from the thudding and thudding and thudding. But, man, those that heyday of boxing was great. It really. Yeah, was. it was. And we would we I talked to a lot of old fighters when I was in Vegas, too. Um Floyd Mayweather, Floyd Mayweather Jr.'s dad, was a fighter, uh, also, and um, and I met Muhammad Ali, and, and uh, you know he he had Parkinson's and uh, and a lot of that other some of the other brain conditions, and um, I think I think you're right. I, I think that it's it's kind of moving on, and you know there could be a t- there could be a day when they say that same thing about football, yep. and you know who knows? I mean the the scenario could end up that. Uh, that the high schools can't insure the kids anymore because you're now having to worry about brain damage in the kids too. And now your pipeline to the colleges is, is disrupted. And then your training game for the NFL. And suddenly it's not as popular anymore because nobody's playing it because everyone's getting hurt. I mean, those are possible scenarios right now. The NFL's King still, right? Right. But, but who knows? We know boxing was king, horse racing was king, baseball was uh, was the number one sport in America for many many years, and it has kind of faded away a little bit yeah. in certain in certain ways. Yeah, you know, tastes change. 
Chase change, people change. Yeah. And so the sports they play and the things they like to watch change as well. Yeah, I'm I'm just praying. I, I love football so much. I, I was never <laughs> – uh, my father played collegiate football, coached high school football before he decided to make a living and, and get into insurance. But mm. um, uh, so I was raised on football, although I was not surprisingly not tough enough to play football. Is that according to your dad? Is that, I mean, it sounds That's like according, someone, according to me. Uh, come lie down on the couch here, Tim. Let's it, talk about yeah, that. <laughs> yeah, you, you get owies in football. Uh, yeah, right. But no, it just was never physically, it never was my sport. But uh, I have studied it. I mean, I'd watched my father break down film, and and uh, it's just part of my culture, part of my life, um, the sport I love the most to watch and cover. I'm begging, hoping, and praying that science – gets ahead of the trend that you mentioned that seems inevitable that parents and then schools will start pulling young boys out of football and uh, the sport will just kind of dwindle. Maybe before the lawsuits kill it, but uh, the interest will dwindle. I I find it hard to believe, but as you said, baseball was the sport for generations of Americans. And now it's probably – third and in some parts of the country fourth or fifth sure you know with yeah. soccer emerging yeah. in america so yeah exactly I, you know it's uh, the, i remember we're both old enough to remember the nba as a as really not that big a deal yeah. um you know back when i was a kid and um in the in 70s late 70s uh that you know the NBA finals were still on tape delay and and you'd you'd have to it was tough to find it until until Magic Johnson and Larry Bird came out in '79, and that would that kind of changed the the personalities, changed the changed the game, and so you know, the, and the NBA has really latched onto that. And I don't know if everybody's watching uh, the uh, the Bulls, uh, the 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 Michael Jordan specials on ESPN or not, but you're kind of seeing what that what that wrought, you know, yep. and what and what it was that uh, that that became of that kind of cult personality and 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 how that has moved into our american psyche it's really incredible i i I remember being a fan of the aba um oh yeah because it was a more exciting brand of professional basketball and then they eventually merged uh, into the one league and um but you're right it was really built around the magic bird battles and to have both Mm -hmm. of them on the record saying oh yeah jordan was better Puts it, puts it all in context for the young viewers who have didn't understand how good Michael was, how dominant Michael was. It's, I have not caught up on three and four yet, uh, mm. and I will do that uh, later today. But uh, it's just incredible. I mean, it just it's it's fun to see it put all back into perspective for me, let alone I mean, a new generation. 85, uh, 84, 85, 86, I, it was my junior, senior year in high school, and that's when the original Air Jordans came out. And I had a paper route, and I saved up money, and I bought an original pair of Jordans. Wish I still had them. Uh, and wore those for basketball and for volleyball. And, in fact, uh, <laughs> show you, you know, sneakers, even back then, were pretty important. I was playing uh, volleyball. I played on the school volleyball, and we had a, had a boys' volleyball team. And I was actually living overseas at the time, and we were playing – uh, an away match at the Hague Holland huh. at an Air Force base. I know, right? Crazy. And so, uh, and uh, I was wearing my Jordans, and uh, you know, kind of a disaster happens, and uh, and a someone came under the net and, and essentially bro- and broke my leg. 
So I break my leg playing volleyball and the Dutch paramedics show up and they're like, well, we need to cut this shoe off. And I'm like, no, no, give me a stick to bite on. You will unlace my shoe and take it off gingerly. <laughs> Do not cut oh, the Jordans. No. <laughs> my leg is at a funny angle, but don't cut the Jordans. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, hey, things are important to a 17-year-old kid, I'll tell you. That was my sport, brother. That's that. I played uh, club ball in college, and I wish I'd oh, wow. grown, up, grown up playing yeah. volleyball. And then I decided to eat and drink a lot. So uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've noticed. I'm not in volleyball shape anymore. You're not as much an outside hitter as you used to be. No, I know. I, I was always the setter that could hit, but uh, yeah. now I'm just yeah. the sitter. I just, the sitter? Yeah. It's a much different position, less active. Yeah, yes. Understandable. Understandable. I love yeah, I love I, more more volleyball, uh, more Boys volleyball should be played around in uh, in the U.S. I think it's a great that's a great sport. A great I really sport. enjoyed that. I, I was a volleyball basketball guy and uh, played a little baseball. And my dad wouldn't let me play football. So, yeah, he would point to people like at our church. He said, you, "You know, uh, you know Bob Jepson? Like, yeah, you know how he walks? Yeah, yeah. He played he played college ball. I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. You don't want to do that. Yeah. I'm like, uh, okay. So, never played football. <laughs> but and again, then, you know, covered the NFL for 17 years. Then you get injured playing volleyball, a sport in which there's literally a barrier between you and the <laughs> <Nope>. other team. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> it's got, there's a net, there's all these rules. Don't cross boys, boys. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. Hey, it's Fitz. Let's hit the pause button right here and take a little break. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When did you go to Green Bay? Uh, I, went, I went to Green Bay in 1999. I got there with Ray Rhodes in the ill-fated one-year Ray Rhodes experiment yeah. in Green Bay. He was only there for a year, and uh, I was working for the Fox station there. And we, it was, uh, It's a, a town not much bigger than Manhattan. And uh, with an NFL team stuck smack in the middle, it's similar to Bill Snyder. If you move Bill Snyder about another mm, another few blocks, uh, you moved him probably a few blocks to the west and put it right in the middle of that neighborhood. Huh. 
then that's what Lambo's like. It's right in the, you know, there, there, the, there are houses all around it and people, you know, people sell their, uh, they rent out for parking their, their driveways and their lawns and, um, uh, you know, an amazing, uh, just an amazing heritage. Uh, the first day that I got there, I went to the Packers hall of fame and sat and watched all the movies and the videos, and the old, old timeies, the curly Lambo Lombardi eras and, um, to, to really find out about it and that people live it. I mean, this, the Wisconsin fans was the fans in Wisconsin, uh, are just so dedicated and everybody, every fan base is dedicated, but you find that with these, with the Wisconsin fans in that climate, the frozen tundra is real. Ron Wolf, who just went in the hall of fame a couple of years ago, the great GM said they've got two seasons, winter and 4th of July. <laughs> and, and, and so, um, you know, that, but that, that was, uh, such a, an amazing, I was there for 17 years and I had nine years of Favre, eight years of Rogers. So it's kind of split the two and uh, watching the Packers draft, uh, a, quarterback in the first round this year reminds me a lot of the year they drafted Aaron Rodgers and the brouhaha that created for about four years, five years. Um, it's fun to cover. <laughs> How will Aaron Rodgers handle this? You know, uh, that's a good question. I think that he will look at, he's a smart guy, but he's really a proud guy. I mean, most, you know, most NFL quarterbacks are, uh, very self-confident, shall we say? Yeah. And uh, he was asked actually before the draft, he said, whatever happens if the Packers draft a quarterback, he said, well, the guy's still got to try to beat me out. I don't plan on getting beat out anytime soon. I think that everything that Aaron Rodgers takes, it it, uh, it motivates him. And so um, don't be surprised if you see a big Aaron Rodgers year this yeah. next year. If football plays. I mean, if they play. Uh, but uh, I would imagine that would be the case. I was a little surprised they made that move, but then again, quarterbacks are a commodity. You can have a number two. Yeah. Well, the Patriots did it. I mean, you can have a number two, and um, it can be an asset that you can later trade, or maybe they become a free agent, but that's kind of the the thing. You, How long do you hold on to this asset and try to move them? Um, or does it happen that he, Aaron Rodgers suffers an injury where you have to put the young guy in action. It's. I thought it was a good move. I was a little surprised yeah, you never, when they did it. Yeah, yeah, and and Rodgers is a year older than Favre was when they drafted Rodgers. So it's kind of an interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting dilemma as a GM. As a GM, and one of the things that Ted Thompson was the GM there for a long time, and I would have discussions with him, and you know his his philosophy was I would always want to give up on a player a year too soon rather than a year too late. Because as a GM, your job is to continue the success of the team, not to um, assuage the fans, not to stroke an athlete's ego, not to any of that stuff. So they, uh, so his whole philosophy was, yeah, I, I better have a quarterback ready to go when Brett Favre's ready to be ready to retire. And Favre had already talked a number of times about retiring, and, um, and then when he finally did, and the Packers said, "Yep, we're moving on." and Favre wanted to come back. Uh, that's when it really actually became an issue. I don't know there was ever a massive issue until Favre decided, you know what, I'm going to retire. Uh, and after that, it just kind of became a mess. <laughs> Times have changed. We now have Twitter. Uh, that that changes the equation. Yes, exactly. It, it ramps up all emotions on every angle. And also, quarterbacks are physically younger now because they they're so protected by the rules. They're taking fewer hits. You can hardly even touch yeah. them anymore unless they expose themselves by running or something. 
that they're all in so much better physical shape in terms of serious injuries, concussions than they used to be, and that he should be able to play longer. I mean, look at Tom Brady. I think he's 79 years old. Did you know Tom Brady's <laughs> 79 years old? And he just retired and moved to Florida, and they said, do you want to play football here? It's like, it's like, you know, I need to pick up a job in retirement. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. You got, you had some room. And then his, then his other buddy who retired and yeah. retired in Florida, Literally. Yeah. you know, Gronk is coming down to come down to be with him, you know, say, Hey, let's get a condo together. Sure. That's, ex- that's exactly how it works. When you get old, <laughs> you retire with your friends to Florida. <laughs> exactly. So this is, working out. this is working out great. <laughs> it's it's yeah. interesting to me that you are covering sports in green Bay and Jordy Nelson becomes such a prominent figure in that, Green Bay community, it's like if you could handpick the perfect place for Jordy Nelson to play NFL football with his personality, his small-town background, his heritage at Kansas State, it would probably be Green Bay, Wisconsin. And yeah. that's where he ended up, and it was just a perfect marriage. Yeah, I remember when when they drafted him, uh, the Packers had no first-round pick that year. So it was he was a high second-round pick, and that, he was a – uh, he was so he was one of the last. I think it was the last time a wide receiver that Packers have taken like a weapon in the first or second round was Jordy Nelson was last time, um, and we were all a little surprised to take a wide receiver that uh, that early. We were all rushing to get tape on him and you know the, and all those things. And uh, I remember getting him on the phone uh, fairly quickly thereafter. And you know he's you know, a very humble guy and you know but likes to have a good time. He's kind of a jokey guy. Will give you a good ribbing. I mean you know Jordy and yep. uh, and, and you know uh, and they. Uh, and moved in and we ended up uh, before I decided to come to K-State actually he and I became friendly in that we uh, I used to do a player show a weekly player show and he was my co-host for about five four or five seasons interesting and and so uh, we did a show called Inside the Huddle and it was on it was a TV show that we would do from a bar um, called The Bar and uh, real creative naming strategies. Very good, yeah. Uh, Kept it clear what it was. Yeah, exactly. The bar on Holmgren Way. And we, had a couple, we, had, we moved it around a couple different places, but uh, and we had a great time doing that. And then he also had a charity softball game that he did that um, that we would do a special for, and I would host and do uh, and do those things. And uh, so we got to know each other, him and Emily and the, and, their, and the family fairly well. And so my first call when I was looking to move to Kansas State to – to Manhattan and Kansas State to be uh, to change careers and go into academia and start teaching K State was was to Jordy and said hey can you give me kind of a lowdown what's this family life like what's it like and so he kind of gave me told me about the high schools and and uh, and you know the place to live and here's where you know these these are the places under development and this is where and so he kind of gave me the whole rundown of the area. And uh, and that really that that helped help make my decision, um, but the people of Green Bay just loved Jordy and just embraced him. Um, he's he comes back. He still goes back fairly often, and he was back just this week to do uh, to do a draft to be on part of a draft special that they do. And, um, uh, and his whole his family fit in really really well there, and uh, the things that he pushed forward, the some of the coalitions and and the charities that he worked with uh were were very successful and and did some really great things so it worked out great for jordy for sure for his uh for his career yeah it's uh it's good to have him back because uh he owns half of kansas people don't know that he, he does he keeps <clears throat> he's buying more land he's oh. buying more land. you know one an interesting thing that maybe people don't know about jordy um uh, his powers of healing he's like the wolverine from Marvel. Yeah, he, 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 his 
uh, I remember talking to the team doctor once. Uh, it was a preseason, and uh, Jordy got a high ankle sprain. And uh, I was talking to the doctor about two weeks later. It was preseason. I think we were in Atlanta at the time, and I was just sitting pregame chatting with the, the team doctor. Who was friendly with, and he's like, "Yeah." He says, "I don't." He says, "I've never had anybody who heals like Jordy Nelson." I said, "Really?" He said, "Oh yeah, he could play now." It's a five-week injury, and we're two weeks in. He could play. And you remember the year that he blew his knee out in that preseason game? I think it was Pittsburgh against the Steelers, maybe. And that year, the Packers ended up making the playoffs, and I was still doing a show with him. And I asked him in December, and so now that's so August, September, October, November, December. So four and a half, maybe maybe four and a half to five months after he had major knee reconstruction, which is a year, right, for everybody else. I said, I asked him. I said, so if you had known. Packers are still going to make the playoffs. Would you have rather been on the injury list to return than on the other than on the other list? She says, you know, I would have had to do my rehab differently, but I think that I could have played in the playoffs five months after having massive reconstruction on his knee. Crazy. I mean, he, he was like, he, his, his healing powers. I don't know. It's the in the water and the mom's the mom's pies out at Nelson's Landing, or if it's <laughs> or what. But uh, he, he was. Uh, that's one of the things. In the NFL, being available is is accountable and available. Accountability and availability is what Coach Mike McCarthy used to say. And, um, he was always he was always available, always trying to be available. Crazy. Yet, I remember many years ago he was still in high school, um, and I think it was the the summer in between high school and walking on to Kansas State. I was out uh, getting ready to play softball, and I was watching one of the really good teams in town. And this kid hit just a you know a, a nice little sharply hit ball into right center field that didn't make it to the fence. A very good outfielder picked it up and got it back in, and Jordy was standing on third. <laughs> and I turned to the guy next to me, and I'm like, who the hell is that? I've never seen someone turn bases like he did in, in City League softball, for God's sakes. And and my buddy, uh, Bernie Haney, who uh, is helps with uh, Colbert Hills, he said, oh, yeah, that's Jordy Nelson. Uh, he, Mark Mangino told him he wasn't fast enough to play at KU, so he's just going to walk on at K-State. Well, that worked out fine for Kansas State. <laughs> worked out good for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> and a great guy. And, and a great citizen. Yeah, exactly. So it's just, it's just wonderful. At, at the end of the day, why did you make the move out of the addiction of you know, daily journalism into teaching? You know, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, I, I, my first job, is a dad. And um, I, I had two young girls who at the time were, uh, you know, eight, nine, eight, eight and 11. And uh, I had always, having children was really hard one for my wife and I. We, we were told we wouldn't be able to have any for many years and uh, had to go through a lot of medical procedures to be able to do that. And we managed, and we were very blessed to have a, a couple of successful uh, cycles and, and we were able to have two children. And so that my family's always been super important and working at night was great for me because then I could see him in the mornings and, uh, you know, I, was, I would make breakfast and then I was the homeroom dad for, for years. I was the, I would yeah. go into their classes every in the mornings. You know? Uh, and once they got out of that, suddenly I wasn't seeing anybody anymore. You know, I'm working till 1231 in the morning and coming home. And now I'm, uh, I'm getting older. I'm kind of tired in the morning and, and now I'm just not, I'm not even, hardly a part of their life. I'm going to work as they're coming home from school. And, uh, and that was, um, that was a major compromise in my life for 
for that. And, and it became to be a situation for me, uh, for my family, my wife included, and, uh, that it became just too much of a compromise for us. Um, I said, yeah, that's, you know, as I look at the big picture, I started looking at what have I done? You know, I, I've, I've been in a World Series. I've covered an All-Star game. I've been in, been in a NASCAR pit crew. I, I've, you know, been to the Final Fours, covered a Super Bowl winner, uh, you know, been to a major, major golf tournaments, U.S. Opens. And, I, it, you know, there, there was nothing that I hadn't done in that career. And so I didn't have any of those on my wish list anymore. And I thought, well, I've told a lot of stories. I've kind of done what I want to. I have other passions. And my wife and I sat down, I remember this very vividly, about five years ago, sitting down at a diner in Green Bay. And we were, you know, getting to our late forties and said, fifties coming up. This is what our thirties and forties were about. What do we want our fifties to be? And I was, I thought, you know, what I really want to do is be in a college setting with young people and teach study abroad. I have a passion for travel and I mean, it, you know, got me in trouble this last mm -hmm. month, <laughs> but, but that's one of my, I've, I've lived, I lived overseas off and on for six, seven years. Um, that was an, it's important. I speak, you know, I speak French and, and uh, a couple of other languages and uh, in little bits, uh, but that was an important part for me. And that, that wasn't going to happen either. And so when the opportunity came at K state, I had a, an old college buddy who was on one of the search committees and, um, I, he knew, he knew from another college buddy that I was, I'd got my master's and was thinking about changing. And he called me up and said, here's some, here's the opportunity. And I said, well, that's kind of exactly what uh, in that diner in the Nicolet diner in green Bay, Wisconsin, we were, my wife and I talked about this. That's what I wanted to have happen. Um, and, uh, on top of that, my wife was looking to get her doctorate, uh, and, um, is now a dissertation away from that. So we saw some life goals. We saw that we had the, the interaction with the kids that I wanted to be able to go to all the plays. Um, you know, I wanted to be able to continue uh, a performance career. I, I also am very involved in community theater and uh, do a lot of singing and dancing and acting on the stage, which is, was one of my first loves. And all those kind of came together. I said, well, I've done everything I wanted to do in the sports sports world, and lo and behold, there actually is a world outside of everyday reporting journalism, which, you know, when you're in it, you don't know. Uh, you, you think that's not true. Right. But then you get out and you go, oh, my gosh, there are other ways to live life. <laughs> uh, and it was so exciting and great for 25 years. And But, but I was done. I was done. And that's the experiences I've had in the last three years here in Manhattan, three and a half years, have been amazing. Uh, the people I've met, the places I've been, uh, I do a month, uh, five, six week study abroad in Italy every summer. And so, you know, that's not this summer, <laughs> but, uh, you know, those kind of things are just really enriching to my life and round my life out as I want it to be rounded. And that's, that was important to me. That's really cool. That's really cool. Uh, the next trip you might shoot from malaria. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right. I'm going to the I'm going to the Amazon basin. See yeah, if I can get yeah. dengue fever. <laughs> yeah, Ebola's out there still. Ebola's always it's a possibility. It's got to be there. It's, it's that's a possibility somewhere. <laughs> See what I can do. <laughs> Working with the college kids has to be good. I mean, there's going to be ones that are challenging, but you find the ones that really are digging in and and are focused on this as a career, and uh, that has to be. I did it for one semester. Taught that was that was enough. Sports. Well, they they canceled <laughs> they canceled the class. Ah, sports writing. Yeah. I, I'd like to think that I got it so right that it couldn't be taught ever again. <laughs> In reality, I think I sucked at it, and they decided to shut down the class. Or 
or it was the budget at Kansas State. Imagine the budget. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. But uh, it's yeah, got to be cool. Yeah, it's the the and, and you know the ones that are really struggling are often more gratifying than the others. Uh, you know, it's great to have those who are really gung ho and and want to go make a name for themselves. And we've had some great students get great jobs and are doing really really well. And then there's those who come in who are afraid or just don't have the background or whatever and are able to that we're able to work with and i'm able to work with them you know just even just one-on-one and writing and uh, and uh, and performance you know my side job is i'm also a performance coach and so that is very gratifying for me to see the light bulb go on and i've seen students who come in who want nothing to do with it they had to take it because it was a required class fall in love with it and now that's their life's passion and that is really cool to say wow I, that's a I helped make a difference for that one person and that they all look back on that and say that was important to them in that, that, that relationship's important that, you know, whatever was, um, you know, something I say, something I do or something that I can help with. And, uh, that, that to me, uh, my wife and I are very service minded, service oriented. You know, we, uh, I'm also, I'm the chairman of the board right now for the, uh, president of the, uh, the common table, which is a group of, uh, a coalition of churches that does a, that does a, uh, a meal for the hungry and homeless every single night of the week. And that those things are important to us. And it, journalism is a service industry. Teaching is a service industry. That's, that's kind of been my life. And so that, uh, that's how that, that to me is great to be able to continue that in just a different way. You know, now I talk to students individually or maybe a class of 20, as opposed to standing in the middle of the 50 yard line at Lambeau field, talking to 70,000 fans at a scrimmage, you know, mm-hmm. it's different. But uh, no less gratifying. Drew Smith, you're a renaissance man. You travel the world. <laughs> you do theater. That, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. When did you get, when did you get involved in, in theater? Gosh, really young. I mean, really? I was, uh, I was the Spanish Cavalier in the first grade play. I bet you were sexy. I could, I could still. I, I had the little cutouts on my my black slacks with the little red cutouts on the mm. on the bell bottoms, and when Legit. I walked, they swooshed. Legit. I can still sing that. The Spanish Cavaliers but in his retreat. I won't sing the whole thing for you. You know how Good. it goes. But uh, yeah. so I started. That's how I started. I actually went uh, went through high school and uh, did a lot of theater in high school, and then uh, started that that way in college. Actually, as a freshman, and uh, served a couple of years service mission, and came back and uh, started to started to realize that I didn't want to audition for every job I ever did. Uh, I'd rather just be able to go work. And so that's when I kind of combined my passion of performing, which is what television is, your mm-hmm. type of performance, with storytelling uh, and with writing. And so, hey, you know, going into sports and being able to see all my events for free. Are you kidding me? I didn't, I didn't pay for a ticket in 25 years, you know. So <laughs> that was great. Got to see all the games. Yeah. It didn't uh, get so, to cheer, but yeah. No, you, no, that's okay. That's okay. Um, you know, that, for the big ones when I wanted to cheer, I would go buy a ticket. You know, after uh, I'm, I'm from the East Coast originally, so I'm a big Yankees fan. And uh, after 9-11, they made it to the World Series, and I scalped some tickets and uh, was there the night that George Bush threw out that first pitch? That is, you know, that famous first pitch where Derek Jeter told him, "Don't, uh, don't bounce it; they'll boo you." Um, and we, you know, being together in those types of events are just amazing. Anyway, um, then moving back here to uh, to Manhattan, uh, one of the first things I did was seek out uh, those where where is was there a way I could perform and continue to do that piece, and 
was cast as uh, Mr. Banks, George Banks and Mary Poppins in, for, in a musical at the Manhattan Arts Center. Uh, and, you know, I was hoping to be in the chorus and they gave me a big role. And uh, from there, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. I do probably three productions a year. And um, it's just a great outlet for creativity. And, uh, you know, even if it's just painting the sets and, and doing all the uh, and building things, I just working my hands. It's just, just a lot of fun. Volunteer work. And it's just, just uh, it's a great time. It's a great time. I, you know, my, my wife, who is not a performer, uh, still is just kind of uh, flabbergasted. And I say, you should go out try for this, honey. No, no, not ever. No, never. <laughs> so she's on the board. But she says, I'm never going to go on the boards the, uh, on the stage. So pretty. Uh, but my kids are also involved. My kids, uh, my kids like acting as well. So got my, my youngest is very much into that and, you know, likes to sing at the top of her voice about half the day. Nice. So quarantine has been interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you are, you're literally living the life you wanted to live when you left Green Bay, aren't you? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's worked out. It's worked out really, really well. And so thank you to the community of Manhattan in particular. I mean, we lucked into a great community, you know, when, when we were sick, uh, when we got back from London and we were in massive quarantine for, uh, for about three weeks. Um, and the only place we went was my wife shuttling me to and from the hospital. Um, we had, neighbors and everybody who were here uh, were you know, leaving things on our porch and buying and getting us groceries. And I mean, it was just, just amazing the support of this community. So we just lucked into a great community too. And that's, that's been a blessing. It's a special place. Yeah, it is. I, yeah. I'm from Kansas. I ended up here when I was four in Salina and I moved to Manhattan for college and ended up moving back and I never want to live anywhere else. I, I can travel anywhere I want, but there's only one place I want to live, and that's that's right here. Um, yeah. And most of it is exactly that. It's the people and the culture and um, the ability to do so many things in this this cool little community. It's really a nice place. Yeah. Can't, can't wait till we get back up to full speed. I know. You know? <laughs> That'll be nice. <laughs> you know, people ask me, uh, what's Manhattan like without the students for so long? And I'm like, I have no idea. I've left the house. I left my house uh, – well, I left my property once in the last, well, I don't know, six weeks. I've, lost, I've stopped counting. And um, uh, that was just to drive my wife somewhere for her to pick up food. I never – so I still haven't set foot off my property uh, other than stepping into the street. That's it. See, there you go. There you I, go. It's, it's, uh, it is remarkably quiet. <laughs> yeah, and, so. and in your version of the Lambeau Field KSU Stadium, Bill Snyder Stadium, that yeah. would be – I would be one of the homes very close – to the field at that point because I'm just a half mile west as it is. So yeah. you'd be putting it in my neighborhood. Get right in your backyard. But you're right feeling good right now, right? Feeling great. Yeah, feeling great. You know, my my wife was able to donate plasma I saw uh, that. This, this week. Uh, you know, the, we, we both tested for antibodies. I'm, part of the COVID is blood clots uh, for me. And so now I'm on blood thinners for six months or however long. And so until I, until that's done, I can't, uh, I can't donate, but my wife did donate plasma. That's going to which is going to go directly to help three, at least three uh, seriously ill COVID patients that they had waiting, ready to go. So it's, yeah, got very fortunate to be able to help. That's really cool. And you can do that about once a month. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah every 28 days, I think it was her. That's they all. It. And you have to get retested for antibodies too. Cause you know, we, nobody knows how long, the antibodies stay in the system yet. So yeah. we're still, still pretty young, you know, as we're, we're, we're been doing a lot of firsts, which is crazy, but, yeah. um, so we're not really sure yet, but we'll, 
okay to be guinea pigs. <laughs> That's right. You know, I saw Sean Payton on the draft, Saints coach, talk about it because he had COVID. <clears throat> and the, the morning before, I think this was uh, Friday night, the second round, second, third round of the draft, he had gone and given blood because it was his first opportunity to give blood, and he planned on doing it as often as he could. But uh, And yeah. I think that might be a pathway that gets us further down the road is the sharing of antibodies. Sure. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah, and that I think it's going to be important. That's going to be important. And you know, like I said, this is we're all in it together. We are all in it together, and that's the community has to fight this together. And and that's that's they've done really well here in Manhattan, in particular. Well, brother, you were in my prayers. Uh, Thanks, man. You, you will continue to be in my prayers because you teach college students, but that's not related <laughs> to, to COVID. <laughs> right, exactly. That's a little different. A little yeah, different. different. I'm glad you're doing well, bud. I'm glad you're doing Thanks, well. Man. I appreciate you taking time to talk to me. My pleasure, and, and, uh, and yeah, you've always been my, in my thoughts as well. As you, you're, you have your battle going on as well. Yeah, uh, and God bless you for that. God Thank bless you, you for that. All right, man. Okay, talk to you later. There are a lot of dimensions to Drew, and he has not only been a blessing for the journalism students at Kansas State, but his family has brought a lot to the community of Manhattan. And having spoken to his class a few times, I'm glad to get to call him a friend. That's it for another episode, so it's time to remind men over 45 to get their PSA score checked. You should. Hashtag know your score. Take care, everyone. I'll talk to you real soon. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.